Welcome back, Port Save Africa listeners. As the global community continues to navigate the COVID landscape, the Africa Study Group is collaborating with us, Port Save Africa, to explore the current realities of African youths and their perspectives on a post-COVID climate. The Africa Study Group is an association promoting closer cooperation between Canada and Africa in all relevant domains. Specifically, we're collaborating with Adeola, and Adeola describes himself as an African indigenous invested in creating and bridging value to promote the African diaspora in Canada. For today's conversation, we'll be focusing on Nigeria from the perspective of a Nigerian in the diaspora called Chuki. Chuki Ibe is the editor of Trad magazine. Trad is an organization that creates African-centered educational experiences. They publish tradmag.ca and they create learning tools for students, teachers, and the community. Tradmag is the publication for African ideas and collective memories. They are on a mission to restore and renew our people's traditions. He'll be sharing his thoughts today on what safety nets are, what they currently look like, and what they can look like in the future of the African continent. To Pod Save Africa. Welcome 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 to Pod Save Africa. Welcome. So, Chuki, um, we'd love to hear your thoughts on social safety nets. Um, just perhaps ascribing what might be a more complex topic to the African continent. Um, and by describing it, first of all, and, and letting us know, you know, why, why exactly a social safety net might even be important. Yeah, so depending on where you are in the world, um, you might have a different name for what we basically describe as a social safety net. So if you live in the United States, for example, you might know it as social security, social welfare, welfare programs. There's this whole uh, culture around or, or the language around kind of welfare queens and, and welfare culture. Um, in, 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 in Canada, we, we kind of call it social security, but we don't necessarily have the same language that we used to discuss it here that they do in the United States. In most of Sub-Saharan Nigeria, the Sub-Saharan Africa, sorry, the word that is most used there is social protection. Um, social protection, social security, social welfare, it's, it's basically the same thing, but it's a series of programs, policies, initiatives, structural designs that are used to protect some of the most vulnerable people in a country. But it could also be used to incentivize things like uh, growth, protect the uninsured, um, provide incentives for small businesses, um, provide uh, protection for vulnerable people, vulnerable families. It's, um, it's, it's not a novel idea, it's been, it's been well, it's one of those things that are actually quite naturally occurring. Um, you find even in many indigenous communities in Nigeria, we practice a basic level of social security. So it's not, it's not always something that the government does for people. Sometimes it's what people do for themselves as well. I'll give you one very specific example. 
if you are Yoruba, you probably know the word Isusu or your parents are probably in an Isusu. It's basically a group of usually women coming together. Each of them contributes a percentage of their income. Maybe it's 100 Naira, maybe it's 200 Naira. It's an agreed amount. And then they all contribute to a specific pot and then they share that pot. As, uh, so each, each week, each month, whatever allotted amount of time, somebody gets the total amount of money. So everybody contributes to a pot. One person takes the pot home. It's kind of almost like a reverse lottery, <laughs> but but it's it's a way that it's it's institutionalized. It's it's also a way to build trust. It's a way to know your neighbor. It's a way to build community and protect the most vulnerable people. So if somebody needs that money urgently to study business, to raise capital, uh, if there's a health emergency, the person can go to the boss or the chief madam of the Isusu and ask that their name just be bumped up. Um, and, and the next round, when the money goes around, they, they're going to put their own share. It's actually something that I saw in my own, my own household growing up. My mother is a tailor and she hires, she hires a bunch of tailors as well. So every month uh, she takes a small cut out of the tailor's salaries and then gives it to one person. And then the next month they do the same thing and gives it to another person. So think about it as something a community can do for itself. Think about it as something an employer can do for their employees. Employees, uh, employers can do for each other and the government can do for people as well. Um, Nigeria, the Nigerian context is very interesting because Nigeria had never really developed a sophisticated social, national social safety project. Mm -hmm. And that's primarily as a result of social adjustment programs that happened coming out of uh, the independence area. Um, coming out of the independence era. And, and I'm not necessarily one of those people who like to look at the IMF or the World Bank as, um, as villains in our story. But when you actually go deep into the research, it's important to understand that there were a series of IMF and World Bank-led programs that basically made um, uh, developing countries, countries coming out of the colonial era, divest from all their social investment programs because in their mind these social investment programs were not revenue generating for their governments mm -hmm. but but it's the goal of the so the goal of social protection is not to, ge to generate revenue the goal of social protection is to protect people you know to protect the vulnerable mm -hmm. but it has long-term benefits um, in the sense that these are the people who because they have say a basic income because they can access insurance because they can access um, quality education, they just have better life outcomes, um, especially women have much better life outcomes are better able to take care of their children. Um, so it might not be a front end revenue generator, but over a long period of time, it helps to equalize society, provide more opportunities for people. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's basically what a, a social safety net is. Um, and let me let me bring it a bit more even specific. So if you, if you live in the United States, for example, if you're unemployed, um, one of the things Biden did was give you those stimulus checks, mm -hmm. right? So those stimulus checks were a type of social social security, direct cash transfers, universal basic income. That's a type of social security, direct cash transfers. But then there's also some really really interesting things that are happening. Sorry, I love talking about this stuff because it's, oh, it's what I study. Um, there's some really really interesting interventions. One of my mentors um, and the lady I look up to, uh, Dr. Chika. Um, studied in Howard, did a PhD in, in social development in Howard. I uh, did a bunch of research in Rwanda. And one of the pieces of research she did was, I think it's called the, in the, 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 the Gorinka system in Rwanda, where basically 
every poor family gets a cow and the government buys them a cow um but this and i mean this quite literally and this cow though is a basic asset to that family the cow provides milk the cow provides labor to till the ground uh, you can sell the cow you can eat the cow you can trade it it becomes a tradable asset for you so so don't always think about social security as money sometimes it's land sometimes it's cows sometimes it's a good family right so it's uh it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a series of interventions that are possible to protect um, the most vulnerable people, usually the most vulnerable people in society. Um, and who is vulnerable is a question. Um, how, do you, how do you calculate vulnerability is a question. Who is vulnerable in different contexts is a question. And kind of what is the, what is the political trade-off? Because why I use the analogy of, um, of, of welfare queens, and I, I hate that name, it's quite disgusting. Um, that comes up in the states is because the more you give to the vulnerable people, uh, the more people who are paying higher taxes feel like, you know, um, those those people are being exploited or those people don't deserve um, uh, the, the the cash. It's also the same thing in other parts of the world where I say you get a, a huge influx of refugees and everybody says, well, they're going to drain our pensions or, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to be using our resources and they, they didn't pay into it. So there's always quite a delicate balance to strike between how much do you give and what is the political trade-off for that giving? So uh, that's social protection or social security in a, in a broad overview. Uh, some of the examples from North America um, and, and some examples that are happening um, on the continent. Okay, fantastic. We think that was, that was super thorough. I think one of the, the critiques, I guess, of social safety nets, especially in or social protections more specifically on the African continent are that you know these are countries with limited amounts of resources and it's like hey you know if you have limited resources should this be the thing you spend on especially because the benefits are not even oftentimes not near or even to medium term for the overall country despite being of course immediate term for the person who is being impacted but you know take for example you know Buhari's you know Marque, you know, one 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 meal per child program that they're doing in Nigeria right now, and it comes under heavy criticism, both because it's been used as a you know political tool to say, hey, okay, we're doing a good job, but two because you know there's this argument that hey, if that's what you're spending your time on, as opposed to X, Y, and Z that you could be focusing on to improve the country, you know, like this thing must be bad because it's draining those resources. What do you feel when you hear those types of kind of reflections on on social? Or does that even count as a social safety net or social protection? Uh, what do you think? Oh, yes. Yeah. So, so the, what, what, the one meal per child policy, the um, uh, market woman money policy, the trader money policy, I think are some really good examples of social safety nets. Um, you know, it's always, um, we have to be very careful about the borders we play on our debates, right? So, um, you know, yeah, so there's there's a conversation about where are resources best applied, and 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 I can answer that question in in many ways, um, but I think for me the fundamental question is what is a model for development, and and what does development actually look like? Um, so this question around resource allocation is you know like some people look at skyscrapers and look at um food and look at drilling of natural resources, and look at mass agriculture culture and look at um, high-tech everything and call that development. 
And that's definitely a type of, that's one valid paradigm of development that does exist. But does every, does every nation have to be like that, right? Is, is that the only model of development that we, we, can, we, can, we can access? Um, I look at some of the healthiest countries, some of the cleanest countries, some of the safest countries on the African continent. I look at Rwanda, for example, they just haven't followed that paradigm of development. Um, their people are much more healthy. Uh, their kids go to school. Um, their streets are safe, relatively safe compared to many of the regions. They protect their wildlife. They protect their greenery. Uh, they, they give women access to, um, uh, to, to decision-making in the highest levels of government. Um, you know, those, those are paradigms we need to be looking at as well. I think the question is, what are our values, right? Instead of having this conversation about what are our resources and what is a dollar amount, best have a conversation about what are our values. Um, what do we want our people to be in 5, 10, 15 years? And how do we begin to align those resources in a way that meets our values rather than saying, you know, why, why should we be chasing the dollar and, and aligning our values to those resources? So that's, that's the paradigm that I like to lead with. Um, and that's not to skate your question, but it's to say, you know, we, we shouldn't put limits on how we have these debates about what is possible in their lives, what is possible in the lives of the women, what is possible in the lives of the children, because to me, those are, those, are, those are the priority conversations. But then to answer your question more specifically, I think it's best to go big before we go a bit more specific, is to then say, yeah, okay, where, where, so now, now, now we've defined our values, now that we've said it's unacceptable for kids to go to school hungry. Now that we've said it's unacceptable for women to be sexually abused, it's unacceptable for women to have uh, limited rights, uh, limited access to property, limited access to, you know, all these things. Um, now that we've agreed on those things, now let's have a conversation and see if the dollar amounts we ascribe with our social policies enable or, or don't enable those things. I don't, I don't really care for fancy skyscrapers. Like that's just not my vibe, but I want to go to a place where people are safe right, where people are secure, because what we've seen as this kind of hyper capital driven development schemes always has trade-offs. And the trade-offs are who? Poor people. The trade-offs are women. The trade-offs are people, who, whoever is at the bottom of your society, right? They come out as waste of this capital driven system. And I, and I mean, and I use that word, you know, very, very intentionally. Somebody will always be at the bottom. So there are different models for development now, the question of of resource allocation, you know, like the, there's there's several things. First of all, heavily national, um, not nationwide social development development policies are very hard to do, um, especially when you live in a country like Nigeria with such a diverse population, such a wide geography. But, but the other thing that I'm interested in is not just social policy, kind of the, the policy side, but it's also the program design and the implementation. So how do you get that thousand dollars or that thousand naira to a trader in the hinterlands of Sokoto? Like what is the logistics of getting that money across to them? Because sometimes you find that the way, like the way you get the money to them is actually more expensive than the program itself. Right, so so you have to make all these um, these these calculations. Um, so I, I definitely I definitely think for for many of these programs to be uh, functional, they have to happen at a local level, right? Deeply deeply local level. Sometimes even at a church, mosque, um, neighborhood, clan, um, regional, local government level, 
um, having them run as a, as a federal program puts so much burden on the federal government for service delivery, puts so much burden on the federal purse, puts so much burden on the federal bureaucracy. Um, and these are assuming that you have a federal bureaucracy, assuming that you have a federal purse, assuming that you have competent legislators. So often we go for these like national policies that um, that don't really that, that are basically more expensive and there's a lot more room for leakage and there's a lot more room for waste. Um, one of the interesting things that happened in Rwanda um, is before they started mapping out their own social programs, they had to build out their local governments. Um, so they had to map out every single neighborhood and make sure that everybody had an address, that everybody had a, a borough or a neighborhood or a local chieftain that they reported to. And then you map it from bottom up. You have to know who needs the money, who doesn't need the money, where are people's clans, where are people's families, what are the migratory patterns to ensure that you can actually provide the, the aid that they need in a systematic level. Um, and then the last piece to your question is resource allocation. Our politicians are one of the, the highest paid politicians in the world, period. So if you wanna shave a couple million dollars, euros, pounds from those people's salaries to ensure that our kids have good lives, bro, I won't mind. Uh, you know, I won't mind, I won't mind at all. Um, so that's the question about the values, right? That's the, that's the answer about the values. That's the answer about the program design. And then that's the answer of where we get the money from. As Chuki has already mentioned, social safety nets on the continent are not a new thing. Research shows that social safety nets have been rapidly expanding across the continent to protect those vulnerable to shocks such as the pandemic, climate and weather disasters, food insecurity, economic downturns, and so on. A report published by the World Bank Group showed that as of 2015, the average number of new social safety net programs launched in Africa every year has risen from 7 between 2001 and 2009 to 14 from 2010 to 2015. Every African country now has at least one social safety net program. The average number of programs per country is 15, ranging from two in the Republic of Congo and Gabon to 56 in Burkina Faso. At this time, Chuki is going to describe how social safety nets slash social security can be dissolved from a federal level to a local slash community level, what the opportunities are, including during the COVID pandemic, and what the limitations are to local slash community level safety nets. Um, so it's so thanks, Chuki, actually, because you kind of answered a couple of questions I had <clears throat> prior with, with, of course, the safety nets, uh, sustainability, the value definition. I think a lot of things are wrapped into that value definition. You know, what exactly are our values as a people, as a society? And then uh, that drives the design of social delivery. Um, my question is, you know, would it be fair comparisons? Because, you know, first we started off with skyscrapers and what the West has as in terms of development. And those are not necessarily things that Africa wants to see as its own definition of development because we have you know, a more tailored uh, uh, environment. But then when we go to Rwanda as a comparison, for example, you know, there are individuals who will tell you, well, we disagree with the methods of the presidency there, the governments there, it's more dictatorian and things like that. So therefore, those values we talk about are hypocritical in that context. Nigeria is a more complex community with over 300 diverse ethnic groups or actually traditional groups. Um, and we started off with Isusu, which was Yoruba, for example. 
And, you know, they have their own ways. I'm sure the Igbos had their own ways. The Shekiris have their own ways and things like that. The challenge, of course, is having that federal, that national cohesive plan that would go with all Nigerians. Now, if we're tr trying to dissolve it to a local level, what is the trade-off or what's the friction between the, um, the, the, the handover of power? Because power is who can feed who. That's how politics is. You know, if you depend on someone or depend on a system for something, then that's, that system automatically has the power, you know, or the authority over who is being fed. And do you think there's a political will by the federal level, even if we discuss values as, as, as a key definition for it, to kind of hand over power to, for example, the Southwest region to begin to develop their own social programs and then break it down to the local communities and things like that. What could potentially be the adverse effect of that trade-off? The beautiful thing about social protection life in general is, you know, with social protection more specifically, you know, I, the, the way I set it up is that um, clearly a community can help itself, a neighborhood can help itself, a church can help itself. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, as, as you've, you've probably already figured out, I, I, I give long answers. So, so bear with me, bear with me as we go through this, but I'll tell you why I fell in love with social protection. Um, I was born in Lagos, lived in Lagos all my life. I come from an Igbo family. Um, my mother is very active in the church, a Catholic, in the Catholic church in Lagos, right? And this is a sea of urbanness and, you know, this one Igbo Catholic church in Ireland around a bunch of redeem and churches and even mosques, you know, just in Lagos vibes. Um, and uh, we have the Widows Association in my church and the Catholic Women's Association and we have the the, the, the diocese of, the, not the diocese, but basically the, the sector of the church that takes care of family and children and the Catholic Women Association and the Young Women Association and the Widows Association all feed into that, uh, that program. And my mom is one of the heads of the program. So um, when I went back home for holiday, uh, my father was not around. So as the, as the first son of my family, you, you, you kind of fill those shoes. A, a woman in our church passed away, her husband passed away. So we did natural visitation. Um, so, and she was an Igbo woman as well. So I went there with my mom and we just went to pay respects to her and her family and see her kids and provide gifts. Um, and actually remember there's a, there's a registry of, um, of people who came to visit. Um, and my mom asked me to sign on behalf of the family. Um, but the thing, the thing with this visitation is that these this visitations are ritualized processes in which our community, both the Igbo community and also more specifically the Catholic community has used to ensure that vulnerable women are not left alone in some of their most critical stages of mourning in their life. We provide cash funds for them. Uh, we provide that just that peer support for them. But in addition, are you guys up there? Yeah. Um, yes, but in addition, we, yeah, but in addition, that woman is still part, that woman, because her husband has passed away, becomes part of the Catholic Widows Association in that specific church. And the Widows Association receives funds from our church, receives funds from the offering that we give every Sunday to church. 
And the Widows Association has a bunch of programs to ensure that that woman and her family are protected and are safe. And they protect her during mourning, they protect her rehabilitation, provide a bunch of services for her, uh, legal services, financial services, help her get trained, get a new job so that if she's not able to, if her husband's was the main source of income, now there's an, there's an opportunity for alternative source of income for the family. Um, the point is, you don't need the federal government to do any of that stuff, right? That's the stuff that happens in families, in churches, in an institutionalized way amongst women. Like that to me is such an important element of social protection. So sometimes we think about what the government can do for us, but I think as equally of a question is what can we do for ourselves? And the beautiful thing about uh, Nigeria, and I'll, I'll say the most, one of the beautiful things about the Igbo people and Igbo culture is that we are such uh, independent community-minded people that we just naturally provide solutions for ourselves on, on many things. And it's the same thing that happens with, with Hausa and Fulani people with their herdsmen culture, right? These things are actually institutionalized organizations that pass down from one generation to the next. So, uh, so I, I give you this long story to say that um, we ought not to think as the federal government as a solver of all our problems. And we ought not to think of state legislators or municipal legislators as the deliverer of our programs. You know, this is stuff that we can we we do quite naturally. We do quite naturally, and we don't need a, we don't need a universal Nigerian program to get started. We need to make sure that vulnerable widows, vulnerable children, are taken care of, and use our current social, cultural, religious infrastructure to ensure that people are protected. So, so we we don't need we don't need a national program. We could do it on, on the state level and we could do it on the personal community level. But I also understand the second part to your question, which is, would the federal government ever dissolve or dilute its powers and share powers uh, across different levels of government? And that's a question that, 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 that's a debate that I think is important to have. It's part of a broader conversation about called the constitutionality of, 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 the, of the nation but but we shouldn't wait to solve the whole problem before we ensure that vulnerable people are protected, especially in a country like Nigeria, where people die like flies. Um, so we need to protect the vulnerable. Their lives have value. They're not flies. Their lives have worth. And we need to start protecting the institutions that protect those vulnerable people. Through the reality, thanks, Chuki. Just a quick question, please, just to add to that before you fight, hand it over to um, uh, Akedi. I mean, the reality is COVID hit the world hard. You know, um, a lot of people, a lot of governments, uh, communities um, have felt the effects. Some are still running off that, uh, of the, the, the after effect of COVID. We're not over it yet. Um, what are the limitations of this local safety nets or safety um, programs or initiatives that you talk about, you know, the church level, the community level, when there's a global pandemic, for example, when there's a national problem like this, whereby you know, it's, it's one thing for the church to say, you know what, we have some reserves here to feed ourselves for the next two months, three months, or whatever it is. But when it's a year and it's the whole country, isn't that something where, okay, you know what, we've done our part and this is where the government steps in or where somebody else steps in and stuff like that. So what are the limitations? What's the bandwidth for that? Yeah, but bro, before we talk about limitations, bro, we have to talk about the opportunities. Um, and again, like I, I don't mean to be sly here or tricky with my words. It's just that we actually never spend enough time talking about what those opportunities are. And, and, and here, here in Canada, and you know, it's so, it's so important that we value the things we have. 
here in Canada, as this pandemic has been raging, as it's been raging with the rest of the world, one of the things that people people have been saying is that the communities need to step up, right? Local communities need to step up and help their own people. But in Nigeria, we have abundance of like we have too much community here, and like you know. Um, but the irony as well of it all is like our churches have better records than our governments, right? Not just the records of who are all the parishioners in, in this specific church, but also just the natural socialization process where you just get to know people. Ah, Mama Felicia is not in church today. Oh, we need to check on her. Like those very natural, instinctual vibes. That's the, those are the opportunities that we come. So sometimes you think, yeah, there's this global pandemic and the world, you know, has all, all faltered, but, but it all falls down to how strong is your local community? How strong is the social fabric of your local community and just this natural people checking up on people like that's something we do i just show up in your house on sunday because you're my guy right like we don't call like all that formality stuff we don't do it so like we shouldn't take this this thing for granted you know and we think about culture sometimes as something that is in the past we need to live in the past but but this checking up on you on sunday didn't happen because uh oh we're just friendly people it's 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 a it's an institutionalized system that we have inherited from our ancestors to just love and care for each other as people and that that like love bro is like the most incredible social safety social protection system you can ever have now it's not up to it's not up to my church to develop a vaccine it's not up to my church to uh, to ensure that we have infrastructure and 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 uh, an industry that can mass produce PPE. It's not up to my church to close national borders and regulate flight and regulate what goes in and out of the country. All that stuff is up to the, is the jurisdiction of the federal government, at least in some, some functional countries, that's what the federal government are meant to be doing. Um, so yes, to answer your question now more specifically, there are limitations to what, uh, what a church, what, 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 let me let me even see like what's like a network of churches. So think about something like the Redeemed Christian Church of God, such a vast network across Nigeria and also across the entire world. There are limitations to what those type of institutions can do. But but let's also talk about the opportunities and what those networks can also do and start looking at those people as real partners in development, real, real partners in development. Um, and, and none of those people will be able to build a vaccine facility, at least not as I understand now, maybe in the future, maybe. Um, but you know, like th these are the opportunities when, when we're talking about social protection and social safety and social security, specific, specifically in the Nigerian context. Um, so speaking about the pandemic and it's good that we brought the conversation there. And we've spoken about some of the opportunities um, for both local um, safety nets and federal, but we've seen how the pandemic has affected um, our African countries, um, speaking more specifically to Nigeria, what are some potholes that these social, social safety nets, both at the local or federal level could have filled um, that would perhaps have made the, the experience of going through the pandemic better, you know, for, for the people? Yeah, you, you simply cannot ask a low wage, um, not even a low wage, you can't even ask uh, a teller in a bank to go home and and socialize and, and social isolate or, or physical distance because they just cannot they just cannot afford to do it 
mm-hmm. right? We live, we live in a country where almost everybody, right, below that doesn't live in Abuja is <laughs> living, you know, like paycheck to paycheck, barely even barely living paycheck to paycheck, you know. And of course, I make that Abuja joke, but bro, there's poverty. There's deep, deep, deep poverty in Abuja as well. Um, so you know, like you can you can you can go home, like especially in those beginning days of the pandemic where nobody knew what was happening. What we saw from recommendations from the OECD, what we saw from a bunch of jurisdictions around the world is send your people home, send them cash, right? But in Nigeria, that that just wasn't a realistic option. One is because we just don't have the the physical infrastructure. When I mean physical infrastructure, I mean like we don't have the program designed by the government to do that. People's bank accounts, access to the federal government, uh, the, the vast geographical dispersion that you can get to the most rural neighborhoods and rural people like that kind of cash that level of 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 government um intervention just we don't have the bureaucracy or the logistic capacity to do that kind of stuff as i understand right now um so yeah so especially in those beginning days of uh, of the pandemic uh the ability to send people home and and keep them home especially those people who needed who needed that cash you know we, we just we just didn't have that uh, but secondly, did we need that? I think is another really good question that I'm really interested in hearing people's perspectives about because at least in Nigeria, you know, the that the experience of the pandemic was, I mean, it's just not not of it's just not the experience in, in many other parts of the world. So we definitely needed local knowledge. We definitely needed robust local healthcare networks and healthcare systems. I think, at least from what I saw in places like Senegal, places like Liberia because of their experience with, uh, with, um, uh, with Ebola, they have been able to build out very sophisticated, at least this is what I see as an outsider reading. They've been able to build out very sophisticated uh, local healthcare networks and healthcare. Um, uh, uh, so basically be able to connect their chiefs, their churches, their ministries, uh, uh, their mosques to the healthcare sector and share information about local healthcare concerns in a more systematic way. I think, at least especially in the Nigerian context, that would have been quite helpful in, um, in the early days of the pandemic to share that information, share knowledge, reach very remote and rural communities, um, but also loop back, right? It's like the, the Health Human Resources Network and Information Sharing System that I think would have been quite valuable because, you know, we see those numbers pop up, um, you know, by the national uh, National Council for Disease Control in Nigeria, and you're like, ooh, like, do I, like, you know, do you really trust those numbers? Like, what is their health information system looking like? So, I, I think more, more than even the the cash transfers, um, because of the, you know, the limitations that Adi had mentioned around resources and jurisdictional levels. At minimum, you know, a good social safety net would have been able to identify what those local health concerns were and feeding information to like a national database to inform a national response. And I'm sure there are, there are a bunch of other, other ways um, that, that especially like from a non-financial intervention way that social systems would have allowed us uh, uh, to, to have a more robust COVID response. And the response in Nigeria doesn't have to be the response in America or the response in Canada. Like um, when you look at the, the uh, when you look at the, uh, the, mor- the morbidity rates from COVID. Uh, we look at the people who are actually dying. You know, these are people in, at least in Canada, in long-term care homes and, and, and rest all their souls, right? These are human beings who lost their lives. 
um, these are really old people. Uh, these are people with comorbidities, with um, pre-existing health conditions. The, those demographic patterns, like we don't we don't put our families uh, in in, in long-term care homes like that in Nigeria. We don't really even have long-term care homes like that in Nigeria. So we didn't see that same level of epidemiology. So I don't know that we needed the same level of response in that specific way, you know. So yeah. So so there's 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 there are so many other ways that we could have responded to COVID and secured ourselves from COVID if we had uh, local uh, local social security networks, especially on the health information network. Thank you so much, um, Adela. Go ahead. No, please, please. Oh, sure. So, so one of the, the critiques I've seen cyclically about kind of some of the one you've correctly identified that you know, hey, churches, religious institutions serve as a, a huge potential opportunity for developing social safety nets. And a specific example about your, you know, your experience with your your Catholic church in Nigeria. Um, I mean, I I think those are fantastic ideal cases. However, I, I guess one of the critiques of, of religious systems in Nigeria so far has been one, a lack of consistency across, you know, so maybe your experience there was, was X, Y, and Z, but how can we ensure that, uh, you know, the, the, the Catholic Church in Bauchi has the same kind of care for widows and making sure that people are taken care of? Um, also, the other, the other critique has been, you know, hey, you have these massive organizations that, you know, amass, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands, oftentimes millions of members. Um, and as a result, you'd imagine amass some influence, like how come they aren't able to put some upward pressure on the rest of the political system to partner in that development of social safety nets and things like that? Is this, what, what would your reflections be on kind of those two? And I'm, of course, I'm not asking you to critique anybody specifically, but if you feel like, please, this is, this is also the place to do so. Yo, but, but bro, look, that is the energy I'm looking for, right? The energy I'm looking for is, is not... Is, is no, it's not whether or no we should do it, but it's how best should we do it, mm-hmm. right? So, so let's start from the place that it is possible, right? And let's start from the place that we value those lives. Now, the question is, how do we design and implement the program? And what are the limitations of, of this level of the style of implementation? And what are the excesses that we should curb, right? And, 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 and it's really a question about good governance, right, of, of these programs. You know, it's, it's, it's also funny because one of the questions I've been, one of the conversations I've been having with my mom is, and my, my mother, I say she's my mom, but my mother is like a businesswoman, like extremely smart, talented, multi, multi-certificate winning, you know, multi-child raising, multi, uh, you know, <laughs> she's, she's like, she's quite, she's quite a force. Um, incredibly smart and talented human and 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 we've been talking like okay mom you did this program in in our neighborhood what does it look like if you actually take this program to the the whole archdiocese right and so like so that is and the archdiocese is like it's a like okay so you have one church that is that is like one church but that church is connected to a bunch of other churches in the same general vicinity so that's what an archdiocese is um, and then from the archdiocese, what what happens when, you know, you take it to like the region, and then what happens if you can if you're able to scale nationally? And it's a question around um, institutionalizing processes that share best practices from different jurisdictions, and we can just you know share information and share best practice. And there's probably something happening in Bauchi that we can learn from where I live in in Lagos as well. So, so all that stuff is possible, 
right? I think it's a question of, okay, how much does it cost? Who's in charge of it? Is there will? How do we find people like my mother or people who even have different types of skills who can scale across the region? One of the other things my mom had shared with me is you know, she started this program um, in the church and they wanted to raise, so they, they, they had this like a young women's entrepreneurship program and they wanted to raise a specific amount of money to support those women. And then my mom just put a call out, a challenge to her friends. It's like, okay, we have this money. We need X amount of, X amount of Naira to ensure that we close up the program. And you have a bunch of young, wealthy, trendy Nigerian women just donating, right? Uh, because they want to support these, these women who they have no idea who they are. So that, you know, that's a level of possibility that is possible. And these are just local people acting in love and acting with intention. And they have the legitimacy of this institution, the legitimacy and trust of knowing each other. And they have a very, very specific program that they're able to fund. We don't like, you don't need the government for stuff like that. Now, like I understand for long-term sustainable growth and development, there has to be some degree of planning and uh, an investment in the sector over a long period of time. But I'm also of the mind that um, my, my father says, you need a proof of concept, right? You need to show people that something works. And, and also on a larger scale, it's, it's sometimes you're, you're actually competing with the government and it seems like I, like I dare you to do better. But, but you also show people what is possible and you show people what they should, what they should expect from each other. Um, you show people what, what they should expect from a functional government. But you do that by building local, building something sustainable, building community. And then there's another question around, okay, how do we supercharge? How do we accelerate these programs outside government, right? Outside the traditional form of um, of organizing and that's when partnering up with uh with stakeholder groups from at the diaspora partnering up with development organizations internationally that's when all this great stuff becomes a bit more possible but we need to we need to identify those local actors doing great stuff and ensuring that their programs are sustainable at least in the short to medium term before we can get on some of those longer longer goals your second question around governance i think is a critical one i mean to assume now that um those people don't have influence already is just not true, right? Like they, they are some of the most influential um, uh, stakeholders in the, in the entire country, right? Everybody wants a picture with X person blessing them or X person praying for them. Um, and, you know, you, you just have to, you have to build the governance system. Like I, I, I understand why it's a problem, um, but, but I don't think this actually makes it more of a problem, right? It, it's just the reality of, of what, the government is, but it's at the same time, it's like religious institutions are major stakeholders in, in politics everywhere in the world, right? It's not, it's a Nigerian phenomenon. Um, and, and, and in addition though, I, I, I definitely see religious institutions playing a significant role, but they're not the only player. They're not the only stakeholder in the game, right? I had mentioned um, local governments. I had mentioned community associations, um, interest groups, women associations, labor unions. So it's around getting a good table of players. So one of them is in more or less powerful than the other and building the capacity uh, across the board. Um, but let me also emphasize that all these ideas are not to, um, to, to, to take the services government should be providing outside of the hands of government and put them in the, call it the community sector. Right. Government has responsibilities to its citizens, 
um, but as we were talking about before, um, just don't, don't, don't walk into the room imagining people have your best interest at heart. You just have to do what you have to do. Um, and don't, don't assume that the person across the table is a rational actor because you know they have their own constraints. So I'm very much in the game of self-reliance. Maybe it's because I'm, a, I'm an Igbo man. You just, you just kind of do stuff uh, to, protect, uh, to protect your own people. And more so before we had governments, we had ourselves and we had social protection systems. Um, Igbo people have one of the most sophisticated apprenticeship systems and apprenticeship networks in the world. We don't, we don't do that with any government. Um, we have one of, we, we used to have one of the most, uh, one of the most exciting insurance schemes. So this is pre-colonization. We had community insurance programs, right? Um, so you don't need the government to do those type of things. So I think, I think one of the, and this is the last thought um, I'll say on this is, uh, one of the great undoings of the way we understand government, and I think we, we receive this from the colonial period and this kind of European style education, is that we expect so much from government and expect so little from people. Whereas in my heritage, at least, you expect everything from people and really nothing from government, right? Um, and and the, the, the citizens, like citizenship is to protect others, like the definition of citizenship was at the center of a political discourse, not receiving government programs or receiving government services. So if you didn't give, if you didn't support and you had, you were almost ostracized from society because you're just not fulfilling your role as a citizen. So the question is around orientation and how do you get people to believe that uh, their citizenship is more important than the government and, and really activate the citizen in them. Stay tuned for part two of this riveting conversation with Chucky, where we talk about the role of the diaspora in sustaining social safety nets and social initiative in Nigeria. He'll also speak on how to identify areas where social safety nets are needed. And once those areas have been identified, they will share how to build these social safety nets. Mm-hmm.